0: All right, well, good morning. If I've not met you, my name is David Cumbie, I'm the lead pastor here at Apostles, and if today is your first Sunday, I especially just want to say a word of welcome. We're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. We're in a series on the book of Romans, and we're continuing with that this morning. Um, I'm really excited. We have the privilege of hearing from uh, my friend and brother, Jack Wisdom. He's going to bring God's word uh, for us this morning. If you've not met Jack, uh, Jack is a member of our congregation. He's an attorney here. Don't hold that against him. Uh, He uh, is also um, uh, a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Seminary Has served as an elder and a teacher And preacher of God's word here in Houston For many years uh, Was a Young Life staffer for a long time And so uh, I am so grateful God has brought uh, into our congregation People like Jack Who can open God's word to us And encourage us with the truth and the grace of the gospel uh, And so I'm going to invite Jack If he would come And I'd love just to pray for you, brother As you, uh, as you bring God's word for us God, we give you thanks for Jack and Lord, we thank you for the words that you've given him from your word, and we pray that Jesus Christ would be lifted up, Lord, that we would be drawn to him. Lord, we thank you again for your anointing on Jack, and Lord, for again, for the words that you've given uh, to him for us today. We give you all thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank
1: you. Well, howdy, the Apostles. It's working. This morning, I have the confident expectation that the Holy Spirit is going to teach us about the dynamic, death-defiant, and doxological reality of our hope. But before I get your hopes up too much about hope, let me clarify what I'm not talking about today when I refer to hope. I'm not talking about wishful thinking. And I'm not talking about the utopian delusions of any political ideologies. And I'm not talking about the hopeless hopes of our neighbors uh, who identify as self-styled humanists who somehow have convinced themselves that human life has no objective meaning or transcendent purpose. You need to understand that within the community of of atheists and humanists, they talk a lot about hope. And they argue vigorously uh, against the charge that they don't have hope. And so you can read the literature, and I've pulled one article from New Humanist, and, and here's an expression of profound hope from Nigel Warburton, philosopher, quoted in New Humanist, my personal hope is for an easy death, and if not, the means to end it myself. That's what I hope for, the end of life. For the life afterwards that other people have, I hope that it works out too. <laughs> so they've got hope, right? So I read this article and you get all the way to the end till they finally admit, yeah, we don't really have any hope. So they go to the good news and they go to Sam Harris who many of you may know, uh, Atheist, luminary, Uh, here's how he caps off the whole conversation. Hope and fear are completely natural responses to uncertainty, but they are two sides of the same coin. If we could be free of fear, we must let go of hope. Easier said than done, of course, but it is possible. And being without hope is by no means synonymous with despair. Rather, it is tranquility. Now, who believes that? Nobody really believes that, and that's why in the last few years, the conversation has shifted from the hopeless hope of the self-styled humanist to the technological optimism of the transhumanist. Yes, there's help thanks to artificial intelligence. And so just this week, in the Washington Examiner, uh, you see the headline, Tech Company Strives to Create Immortality Through Virtual Reality. Anybody already invested in this? (laughs) So in case you're wondering, I mean, who do I invest in? You wanna call your broker, Uh, you can start with Neuralink. That's That's an Elon Musk company. He's been in the news a little bit lately. Uh, He's announced uh, his intention to use his company, Neuralink, to usher humans into a future in which they can merge with artificial intelligence so their lives can transcend their human bodies. Now, where did I learn this? I mean, like all of you, every day I look on the internet to see what the millionaire survivalist has to tell me today. (laughs) That's a, that's a real internet site. And uh, their motto is, 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 is very hopeful. It, it's uh, Teotwaki does not mean you still can't have it all. Can anybody tell me what Teotwaki means? You're not enough of a nerd to know this. So it's the end of the world as we know it. So this whole blog is dedicated to the idea that it's all coming undone, but with enough money we can steer you in the right direction and they're steering us to Neuralink. In the foreseeable future, Musk Neuralink will give us the power to overcome Alzheimer's, dementia, paralysis, and a myriad other disorders. I pray that's true. The possibility of being able to upload our consciousness to live on beyond these conditions and even beyond the limits of our own mortality is incredibly exciting. Musk's full brain interface will completely change the way we live and die. And it will put survival back on the table in otherwise hopeless situations. So there is hope, say the techno-optimist, uh, the transhumanist. Uh, if you're, for some reason, don't wanna invest in Elon Musk company, I've got an alternative investment strategy Uh, Look for the startup HumaI, H-U-M-A-I. Their motto is human resurrection through artificial intelligence. And uh, according to their CEO, when the time comes and all the necessary advancements are in place, we'll be able to freeze your brain, create a new body, repair any damage to your brain, and transfer it into your new body. The process could then be repeated in perpetuity. There's hope. <laughs> That's not what I mean by hope. That's not what we're talking about today. So, <clears throat> what we're talking about today is the dynamic, death defiant, doxological reality of the hope we have in Jesus. I'm skeptical, if you couldn't tell, about the transhumanism project, but you're welcome to do your own research, even though I myself am somewhat of an expert because I watched 2.5 seasons of Westworld in a dazed and confused, often sleepy stupor. So our hope is not predicated on techno-optimism. And our hope is not a hopeless hope. Our hope is in Jesus. Let's set the table. As David mentioned, we've been working our way through Paul's amazing letter to the house churches at Rome. Up until today, I've been a grateful listener in this sermon series. Today, I'm an extremely grateful preacher because David has assigned me a stunningly powerful passage in Romans 5. And of course, uh, it's the week after Easter. What better time, what more optimal time to talk about hope? And of course, because David is always uh, exercising his office and takes seriously his role to protect uh, the flock Uh, He's limiting me to 58 minutes for this sermon. (laughs) With that in mind, I can only talk about the first five verses in any depth. So here's my own uh, rough uh, translation of it, if we can pull it up with a few emendations. Uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and we've learned in this series that to be justified is to be legally acquitted, is to have a legal declaration of no condemnation because of the completed work of Christ. But it's also to be relationally restored for the fullness of life. We're justified for communion, for real connection with God. And that's all by faith. And of course, we've learned in this series that faith is not merely a cognitive assent to a handful of essential propositions. But faith is the... Fundamental orientation of a life which is characterized by trust, devotion, dependence, personal allegiance. If you want to borrow a phrase from the Game of Thrones, that the Game of Thrones borrowed from Alexander the Great, that Alexander the Great culturally appropriated from the Persians, faith is bending the knee to the real king. And we've been justified by faith. And so the amazing news is, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, when Paul talks about peace, he's not talking about the lame uh, peace of the Pax Romana. The peace that the Roman Empire imposed on the world through their superior, uh, uh, superior weaponry and tactics and engineering skills. No. No. We're not talking about simply the cessation of hostilities by the subjugation of adversaries. We're talking about shalom. And shalom is this Hebrew word that defies any ready or easy translation into the English language. But it's, it's peace, yes, but it's peace with real justice. The word connotates the idea of wholeness. It's everything necessary for human flourishing. And we have that. That's a fact if you're a follower of Jesus. Through him we also have access into this grace. It's all by grace. We've learned that in this series. In which we stand. And we boast. We boast in the hope of fully participating in the glory of God. Not only that, but we boast in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces proven and tested character. And proven and tested character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I don't think I can do this in 58 minutes, Dave. There's a lot here. Verses 1 and 2 succinctly summarize God's shalom restoration project as set forth in the first four chapters of Romans when those four chapters are read in the broader context of the entire narrative arc of Scripture. So just to make sure we're on the same page, I'll move through this quickly. I'm going to outline the story arc of Scripture to make this point. In the beginning, my first point, God's creative purpose was shalom through love. We are created for deep, enduring, self-giving relationships with God and one another. A good word for that is communion. To be in communion is to be fully human. To be in communion is to participate in God's glory. The second point, the shalom of creation was vandalized by human pride and our dehumanizing rebellion. A good word for that is sin, which means among other things that we have missed the mark of being fully human. The consequence of sin is death. We traded our glorious freedom and communion for the tyranny of sin and death, and God's good creation devolved into a bogus world system. Third point, God did not give up on us. With the calling of Abraham, God initiates the Shalom Restoration Project. The mission of Jesus is the final chapter of the Shalom Restoration Project. In baseball jargon, he's the closer. Jesus fought the decisive battle for our freedom against sin and death on a Roman cross. And his victory was sealed with the resurrection. Point four, the Shalom restoration project is not finished yet. We live between the D-Day of the cross and resurrection and the V-Day of Jesus' return and the new creation. The struggle continues, but the outcome is certain. Point number five, Jesus through the Holy Spirit graciously offers us a foretaste of the shalom of the new creation now. Even as we wait for the full culmination of the entire project. Point six, we accept this offer by saying yes with our whole lives and we begin to live with hope. With that rudimentary theologizing behind us, It's time to finally talk about the dynamic, death-defiant, and doxological reality of our hope. The force of the word hope in Scripture should not be confused with weak and wishful type of passivity expressed by our day-to-day usage of the word hope. Would you have a high confidence level in a pilot who says... He hopes the jet has enough fuel to get you to London. And he hopes he can figure out how to land an Airbus A380. Would you have a high confidence level in a civil engineer who says she hopes she designed the interstate highway bridge with structural integrity and sufficient load-bearing capacity? It is this weak connotation of passive hope that Benjamin Franklin had in mind when he said, he who lives upon hope will die fasting. Another great American, Dionne Warwick, astutely and poetically critiqued the the futility of passive hope when she sang wishing and hoping (laughs) and thinking and praying. And planning and dreaming. All the girls now. (laughs) Wishing and hoping and thinking and praying and planning and dreaming each night of his charms. That won't get you into his arms. (laughs) She's right. It's a valid critique. The way we throw the word hope around is lame. We've completely obliterated the power of the word. When the apostles speak of hope, they are describing an active, confident expectation of ultimate vindication and glorification based on the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing less. So, our hope is dynamic. David touched on this last week. When we say yes to Jesus... According to the Apostle Peter, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3 Our hope is dynamic because it is a living hope, energized by the power of the resurrection. Peter wrote those words to friends who were about to experience intense persecution under a crazed uh, emperor named Nero. The expectation was the churches in Asia Minor would be subjected to the same type of violence that was being inflicted upon the followers of Jesus in the city of Rome. Where they were being hoisted up on stakes and set on fire to illuminate the night sky as retribution for their uh, alleged role in the fire that burned down the city. So the idea was Peter's writing to his friends saying it's going to get very hard and some of you, I don't know how many, are going to die by the sword or worse. And that's what you're reading when you read 1 Peter. Peter encouraged his friends to invest their dynamic and living hope 100% in God's grace. 1 Peter 2.13 In other words... Peter's investment advice is that we should not have a diversified hope portfolio. I don't have my hope in Jesus and my bench press to body weight ratio and my nunchuck skills. Even though both of the latter are consequential and formidable, Our hope is in Jesus 100%. His grace, our only hope. Now, Peter was confident that because of the power of the Holy Spirit among a suffering church, within a suffering church, that the hope that his friends displayed in the face of intense persecution would provoke a question. That's why we have 1 Peter 3.15. Peter expected the hope that Christians would display in the face of persecution would prompt and provoke the persecutors to ask for an explanation of the hope that's within them. Our hope is dynamic, energized, empowered by the resurrection. Our hope is death defiant. When we say yes to Jesus... We put our hope in the one who conquered death, the one who dealt the death blow to death, the one who sets us free from the fear of death, Hebrews 2.15. Our hope is death defiant because we have entrusted our lives to the God described by Paul in Romans 4.17 as the God who, quote, gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, close quote. In other words, God created everything out of nothing, so He is fully capable. Is fully capable of bringing life out of death. That is what Paul means in Romans four eighteen when he coins the phrase, which uh, you know a lot of the phrases we use uh, routinely were coined in Scripture. We don't even know. Uh, we don't even know the debt we owe to Scripture for. A lot of what we say and do. Um, But uh, Paul is the one who coined the phrase, we hope against hope. And you've heard this expression. And if you want to know what this expression means, I suggest you don't look at the Oxford Dictionary. Because the Oxford Dictionary defines hope against hope as clinging desperately to something that is a mere possibility. Now, that's the way we use the word, the phrase. But that's not what Paul meant when he coined the phrase. For Paul, the hope against hope is to confidently expect God to keep his promises, even though the promises are outside the realm of human possibility. Consider the situation with Lazarus, Jesus' close friend. Uh, Jesus had this close friend named Lazarus. Uh, He was very close to the family and Lazarus' sisters, and Lazarus was very ill. Have you heard this story? And so they urgently got word to Jesus because they hoped against hope that if Jesus got there before Lazarus died, Jesus could do something. But Jesus didn't get there on time. Lazarus was dead, so they were hoping against hope as defined by the Oxford Dictionary, but not as defined by Scripture. They had given up hope because it was humanly impossible for Jesus to do anything about Lazarus once he died. That was was their conclusion, their assumption. And I get it, right? Of course, Jesus understood that. Or consider the passage David read about those two uh, uh, knuckleheads on the road to Emmaus, right? And they're walking along. They're going, they're going uh, seven miles away from where all the action is. They've heard this report from the women, but of course, they're women, so it's not reliable information. Uh, they had hoped... He was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but they lost that hope because they saw him die. And once he's dead, there's no hope. So, to hope against hope is to see that death does not have the final word, death does not thwart the promises of God. Our hope is death defiant. But we do not engage in our culture's habit of death denial. We do not ignore the reality of death. We do not minimize the horrific rupture of death. According to scripture, death is an enemy, a hostile power that ultimately comes for everyone we love and we hate it. That is why Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Jesus was weeping at the whole sorry situation of the vandalization of God's Shalom Restoration Project where people suffer the grief and loss and horror of death. Jesus recognized the devastating reality of death and he died to kill death. We grieve, but we do not grieve as people who have no hope, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We know that death does not have the final word. We know that the circle will be unbroken. Johnny Cash was 100% right about that, and pretty much everything else, too. (laughs) Finally, our hope is doxological. Our hope is doxological because we, quote, boast in the hope of the glory of God. The word doxology is derived from two Greek words. The word for glory, doxa, and the word for word, logos. And it refers to a liturgy of verbal declarations of God's glory. To boast in the glory, to boast in the hope of the glory of God is to express our confident expectation that we will participate in God's glory, by grace, through faith. We have no idea how awesome that will be. But we can catch a glimpse in, Rome, in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 when the curtain is pulled back on the throne room of heaven. If you've never camped out there for a few weeks, then you might want to consider doing this. And we can get the faintest whiff of the beauty of the glory of God if you lay your own eyes on the Grand Canyon or the Milky Way. Or if you hear the blind boys of Alabama sing Amazing Grace. Paul, however, does not hype a hope that has no relevance to the hard knocks of life in a broken world. Careful reading of scripture shows us that Christian hope does not include a confident expectation of a life free from struggle, pain, and suffering. Our faith does not exempt us from suffering, and any TV preacher that suggests otherwise is running a scam, but you already know that. The real challenge for us is to somehow make sense of Paul's statement that we boast not only in our glorious future hope, but also in our present gritty reality. Try to follow Paul's logic. He says we boast in suffering. Now the word uh, suffering can be translated uh, tribulation, uh, the Greek word "phlipsis" It's referring to being uh, subjected to intense external pressure. Not unfamiliar to human beings. Paul says we boast in our suffering because we know something. And when the Bible talks about knowing something, uh, the biblical authors don't throw the word know around to simply talk about Theoretical knowledge or a a cognitive grasp of a subject. Mere intellectualizing, that's not not what it means in Scripture when you see the word know. To know in Scripture, both in the Hebrew uh, and in the way the New Testament writers use the word in Greek, to know is is to have participatory knowledge, experiential knowledge. So what do we know experientially? Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces adversity tested character, and adversity tested character produces hope. And hope, as we have discussed, does not disappoint. Now, it's just a biblical fact. There's no shortcut to character. There's no shortcut to the endurance that produces the character in which we can really know and confirm our hope. It's the crucible of human suffering. In fact, the word crucible comes from the word cross. That's how much the Bible impacts our language. What we really know in all this is that God's love has been poured out into our hearts. And this uh, language of pouring is a language of crazy excess. It's it's a lavish. It's flooding. Uh, this, This word is so powerful and precise And God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And of course, the rest of Romans 5 confirms that over and over again. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, ekthroi. God, for, out of love, reconciled us to himself. The God who loves us is the God who can bring life out of death, who can call into existence things which are not. That same God is the God who demonstrates his love for you on a Roman cross. So you find in these verses an implicit strategy for preparing to live with hope in a fallen and broken world. We should be hope preppers because suffering is coming. So here's the preparation strategy that's implicit in Romans 5. Every day, turn to the cross where God entered the depths of human suffering and demonstrated his love for you. Memorize what scripture tells you about the demonstration of God's love on the cross. Actively call those scriptures to mind throughout the day. Don't let your mind and your heart wander far from the cross. Then, when, not if, you encounter suffering. Resist the temptation to blame God for your suffering. This is the God who sent Jesus. This is the God who, in Jesus, died for you on the cross. The Bible is clear on this. God is for you. And as Paul says later in Romans 8, the conclusion of the, of the, of the uh, section of Romans we're starting today, if God is for you, nothing can be against you. And Paul gives you an extensive catalog of human affliction and suffering and says none of that can separate you from God's love, which is in Christ. But the devil wants to drive a wedge. And so when you encounter adversity, the devil's going to whisper in your ear and say, wait, why is God letting this happen to you? Why is God doing this to you? Resist. Resist the temptation to blame God for your suffering. Resist the temptation to withdraw and suffer alone. Now, if you're of my generation or older, some of you are, you might uh, have been raised on a certain ethos of rugged individualism and stoicism. And there are merits to that ethos. And I can tell you the tendency of that ethos is when adversity comes to be embarrassed about it somehow uh, and to withdraw. That's about the most unchristian thing you can do. What Paul contemplates here in his strategy for dealing with suffering is that we're in this together. That's why he says in Romans twelve fifteen to rejoice with those who rejoice, but to weep with those who weep. No Christian should cry alone. We shouldn't let our brother or sister cry alone. We can't be that church where we're so committed to looking like everything's going great all the time that people don't feel comfortable, don't feel permission to struggle. And finally, keep your eyes on the prize. Resurrection and glory in the new creation is the prize. Read Philippians 3.14. Okay. Anybody who tells you this is easy is a charlatan or a fool uh, or both. I'm going to tell you a story about a conversation. It's a conversation I'm still uh, trying to process. I don't think I quite understand it, but I think, I need to tell you about it. So a few weeks ago, uh, I had the opportunity to reconnect with uh, a person, a friend I had not seen in over 30 years. Now, for me, that's not that long a time. For some of y'all, that's a staggering amount of time, but it's still it's several decades, <laughs> okay? Uh, <laughs> 30 years. This guy was one of uh, the guitar players in one of the Young Life clubs I was running when I was on Young Life staff. And at the time he was uh, uh, a young engineer. I thought he was making a crazy amount of money (laughs) uh, uh, because I was so broke and engineers uh, make pretty good money right out of college. He's a young man, a brilliant man, uh, uh, a highly compensated engineer for an oil and gas company, but a faithful Christian and an above-average redheaded practitioner of the 12-bar blues with an awesome Stratocaster, and he played that for us in Young Life. And thanks to his chops, we were able to uh, expand our uh, song lexicon outside the Young Life song book to include other great songs of the faith, such as... Um, Uh, The Kingsman's Louie Louie, uh, the Trog's Wild Thing, and then Johnny Rivers' uh, classic Secret Agent Man, all of which require a Stratocaster to do them right. And so Doug played guitar for us, and he was so faithful, but what he really was about was uh, theology. He was a brilliant man, a young man, a student of Scripture, and we would talk for hours and hours And he asked the best questions and and ran circles around me uh, intellectually. And uh, I love this guy. And at some point, he just abruptly quit his high-paying job, goes off to theological seminary, uh, uh, paternity evangelical uh, divinity school, and up there, once again, he's the smartest guy in every room that he's in. He just knocks it out of the park. He accumulates a series of degrees. He takes that show on the road, and he's teaching theology Uh, in scripture around the world. I just get reports now and then about his uh, exploits as a scholar and a missionary. Uh, Very proud of him. And I hadn't heard from him directly in a long time. I get this message out of the blue. He's going to be in town for a few days. We go uh, to eat some barbecue uh, and uh, we're sitting there. And of course, he uh, we talk a little bit about what he's been doing in terms of what he's reading. I'm, I'm going right to the theology with him, right? What's he reading lately? Has he come down on this or that? Uh, but he, he wants to talk about, you know, life for some reason. So he asked me how I'm doing. And, of course, I told the truth. I'm so happy, I told him. I'm so happy. I mean, I really am. Uh, and I just run down the list of all these Happy things, right? I've got this amazing wife. You might have met her. We've been at this for 40-something years. We're just getting warmed up. She's so brilliant and fun and hilarious. I've got these incredibly accomplished, amazing daughters. I've got this son-in-law that we're working on. <laughs> you know, uh, got this. got this other guy going to join our family this year. I get to pray for, pay for another wedding. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I got this golden retriever. I card myself just going on and on with this litany of blessings. And did I mention the grandkids? You know my grandkids? I mean, I appreciate many, many of you are very honest. I mean, your grandparents yourselves. But many of you come up to me and say, Jack, I love my grandkids, but yours. <laughs> Woo, they're the best. And so I, I appreciate y'all's candor on that. A lot of grandparents couldn't admit, I'm so happy. That was my point. And I'm eating barbecue. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm happy, and and I'm not apologizing. But I mean, and and I say, Doug, uh, you know, after about thirty minutes of that kind of obnoxious bloviating, showing him pictures of, you know, and I, I, how are you, Doug? It's been hard. Okay. So he starts to tell me uh, tribulations, and he's kind of working his way up, but it comes. comes down to when he came back uh, from the mission field to take over a little church, a struggling little church. Uh, uh, his son was having a hard time fitting in anywhere. He never lived in the States. He was different. And uh, when you have a hard time fitting in, uh, you fall in with the crowd that accepts you. We've seen this. So he starts to describe this story, and I've heard it so many times. I mean, as a young life leader, I've walked with parents in this situation. Uh, their son gets, gets off into drugs. Uh, uh, he he's, uh, struggles with addiction. And so Doug starts to tell me just gritty details of grappling with the struggle of this boy and his addiction. And, uh, and of course, you know... Uh, he keeps teasing me with little rays of hope that he gets in the program, say, good, good, that he's got to, that he's, uh, you know, he, he's, look, look, he's, he's, he's repenting. Good. But then the story keeps going and he's back on the street. And he's back, you know, um, out there where Doug would say, I just didn't know from day to day if I'd ever see him alive again. But then I'd see him. And there was hope. So it's back and forth, and I am confidently expecting something like a happy ending because, I mean, Diane and I walked closely with a family that went through this, and it's a happy ending, and uh, sometimes it isn't. But then Doug kind of finishes the story of his son. He was, you know, high and drunk, at a rock concert, at a NASCAR track, Climbs up on a wall to get a better view. Falls to his death. Done. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I've never cried in a barbecue place before, but I just burst out crying. It just, whoa. I can't even articulate the possibility of something like that happening. One of mine. He is in it, and he talks confidently because he knew that his son, in spite of his disease, in spite of his struggles, he knew that his son knew God. He knew that his son knew the Lord. And Doug confidently articulated to me his expectation, his confident expectation he would see his son again and that his suffering is over. That's not a cop-out. That's hope. That's our hope. Then what I can't process is what Doug said next. He said, Jack, I, I don't even know if I was a Christian before I went through this. Now, some of you all have gone through this. Most of you, like me, probably can't conceptualize the horror of what he described. But our faith is not, our faith is not ultimately about a happy ending in this world. Hank William said, no matter how much we struggle and strive, we'll never get out of this world alive. Our hope is in the resurrection. So, do with that uh, as you will. Um, we fix our hope completely on the grace uh, of God. And our hope is dynamic, death-defiant, and doxological, and is real in the midst of suffering. Amen. 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 Thank
0: you, brother. Let me pray for us. Lord, we just want to take a moment recognizing that your Holy Spirit is among us and at work and Lord you know what we need to hear in this moment and so Lord Jesus we pray to you Jesus you are our resurrected and living hope our hope against hope our only hope Lord, help us to put our trust in you and in you alone. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.